Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. It's impossible, Tyler, to, to do an American Shoreline Podcast that, uh, that talks about what's going on in the oceans and marine world without encountering climate change around almost every corner. Uh, this is another show, Tyler, about one of the more important discussions going on internationally on how we may respond to climate change. And the topic today is really whether the deep ocean space, uh, which constitutes about 40% of the earth area, surface area, is the magic solution to climate change, or whether this area, which is quite vulnerable and quite vast, uh, is suitable as a area for climate mitigation practice. Uh, it's a huge question, Tyler, and, and one I think is going to be of great interest to the, to the listeners today. I am so excited. I mean, man, Peter, when we first started uh, ASPN and, and started co-hosting this show, one of the things that really drew us in like a moth to the flame <laughs> was that uh, we live on the blue planet. And so... Uh, everything that happens vis-a-vis -vis our climate, vis-a-vis -vis our planetary forces are in some way connected, it seems, to our oceans and to the water on the planet. And you're, you're totally right in the way you framed this up. I mean, climate change and, and the changes that are happening to Earth are going to impact the ocean and the shoreline regions uh, just, just clearly. It's going to be a direct link. And it's one of the fascinating uh, drivers of what of what we focus on. And uh, the second piece here is we're going to the frontier. We're going to the unexplored space. I feel like today, Peter, it's like if we had an astronaut who had walked on the frickin' moon on the show. That's kind of the quality of our guest today, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be talking about the impacts of climate change mitigation techniques on the deep sea with someone who's been there and someone who understands it very well. I'm really excited, Peter. Let's introduce our guest. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast is Dr. Lisa Levin. She is an oceanographer with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She is also the co-founder of an organization called the Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative, and she is the co-chair or co-lead of the Climate Working Group in that organization. Uh, she is a widely published, widely respected oceanographic scientist, uh, and as recently authored with, with several other uh, leading scientists, an important paper in the journal Science that came out in March 9th, the topic of which is, title of which is, Deep Sea Impacts of Climate Interventions. Uh, it's really a great paper and the subject of the show. So Tyler, Dr. Lisa Levin is our guest today. Well, it's going to be a treat, ladies and gentlemen. Fasten your seatbelts for this one. We're going really deep, and we're talking about the future. So we're going deep in time as well. But first, a word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. 
With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com advertising. Dr. Levin, thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast and sharing your time and insight with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Dr. Levin, if you would be so kind, uh, would you give us a little background, uh, your professional background, and and how you came to be uh, in this position of, of examining in great detail the potential consequences of climate response initiatives in the deep ocean? Hmm. Well, let's see. My, my background, uh, I've been a scientist for more than four decades now, and um, I trained in a field we call benthic ecology. I study animal life on the seafloor, and I've worked in both shallow and deep waters over uh, many years. And um, most recently, I've been focusing on the deep sea and con what we call continental margins, the communities of animals that live pretty close to shore, but in deep water. And by deep water, I mean below about 200 meters or 600 feet. And uh, I, I sort of backed into climate change uh, and worrying about climate change in the deep sea by first studying uh, the effects of low oxygen in, on uh, these seafloor ecosystems, and then understanding that uh, oxygen was declining due to climate change. And I, I became more and more interested in the effects of climate on deep water now uh, and, and on the ecosystems in deep water and, uh, and also how the, those climate change impacts might interact with human activities. And most of the kinds of human activities we worry about in the deep ocean are fishing, um, potentially seabed mining, but you know, just recently we have to start worrying about um, what we call climate interventions. This is another uh, human's attempt to uh, basically solve the climate problem. Well, I, I I appreciate that, and it's an it's I'm, I think we're fortunate that you backed into it. Let's just put it that way, because uh, we definitely could use your mind and expertise uh, in understanding this frontier space that is the deep ocean and the life and ecosystems that exist there. But before we get into the the deep ocean space and understanding it, I'd I'd, I'd like to just ask you one more question about your particular path. 
and 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 not just your path, but how it overlays with our understanding broadly of the deep sea. Because my understanding, Dr. Levin, is that this is, you know, so much of what we understand about deep sea ecosystems is pretty new science, like new techniques like genomics and uh, even just ROVs and, and robotics are allowing us to go down and, and observe more. And if, if you could just describe kind of your experience from um, getting your PhD or maybe when you, when you were, were young and just kind of first became interested in the, in the deep sea and what we knew then and, and kind of the phases of, of learning that we've gone through since to bring us to the present. Sure. I mean, I would say our understanding of the deep sea has been totally transformed in the last half century. Uh, when I was a graduate student, um, my first year of graduate school was when hydrothermal vents were first discovered. Um, before that time, everybody believed the deep sea was pretty much a flat, homogeneous, dark uh, desert with very little food and that all of it rained down from the surface. And, you know, since that time, we've discovered a whole series of different kinds of chemosynthetic ecosystems where the food is made with chemical energy on the seafloor. So I, I actually started out as a shallow water ecologist. I was fascinated by the deep sea, had a terrific deep sea biology class. I was a student at Scripps um, and Bob Hessler got me interested. And so I, I sort of had an entire career of one foot in shallow water and one in deep water. I've been really fortunate to be able to use um, submersibles like the submersible Alvin and um, remotely operated vehicles, ROVs that you mentioned to visit the deep sea um, directly and not just to observe and explore, but also to even do experiments where we could manipulate things on the bottom and come back a year or in some cases, seven years later and, and look at the effects. So um, I've, I've, I've made, I think now 53 dives in Alvin mm, wow. uh, to the deep ocean and seen a lot of amazing things. And I will tell you, it, it never gets boring. I, Every single dive is fascinating. It's something new. And we, we've come to a point, Dr. Levin, where the, the recognition of uh, climate change, uh, we seem to have, Tyler and I talk, have talked about this on the show over the years we've been doing it. Uh, we seem to have moved past fundamentally the denial step and are now in getting closer and closer to the grappling with the problem step. Um, and it seems in, in the comment in your paper and in, in, in with the uh, Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative uh, that we are starting to see this ocean-based climate intervention as a rapidly, I believe you said, a rapidly emerging arena that poses significant challenges to deep ocean ecosystems and that there is a demand for new science and new governance as the world turns its attention to this vast space on the planet. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what ocean-based intervention, ocean-based climate intervention refers to, and perhaps give us a flavor uh, as you go along, if you can, uh, what ecosystem threats do do the ideas present? Boy, that's kind of the complex question, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Well, I would say we we sort of have to back up and just say that 
you know, the advice from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or not just advice, the statement is that if we want to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees C, we need net zero or negative emissions sometime in the not too far future. And to get there, we have to not only reduce emissions from land, but we have to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and put it somewhere. And, uh, and that's called carbon dioxide removal. Um, to date, most of the technology development for doing that has been focused on land, but now we're focused increasingly um, different businesses and, and startups are looking at how to do that in the ocean. And that's what we call in our paper, ocean-based climate interventions. And um, it's not just removing carbon dioxide, but that's one of the main things people would like to do is remove it and put it somewhere, in, including in the deep ocean. So there are many different types of ocean-based climate interventions um, and probably the, the ones that we're most familiar with and that are most tried and true are involve coastal ecology, coastal blue carbon, like enhancing a mangrove and seagrass growth. But uh, mostly that doesn't affect the deep sea. Uh, there are now proposals to enhance photosynthesis in the open ocean. Um, iron fertilization would stimulate phytoplankton growth or to enhance photosynthesis by culturing macroalgae and then sinking that algae. So the thing to know is that the algae in the ocean, whether they're phytoplankton or big algae, um, remove carbon dioxide during photosynthesis. And so they would remove it from the ocean and that allows the ocean to remove more from the air and then those phytoplankton or algae would sink to the seafloor. So that's taking advantage of natural processes, but scaling it up and enhancing it tremendously. So th that's one type of ocean-based climate intervention. There are other types where we put uh, carbon dioxide sequestered on land. Well, not we, but, but the proposal to do this injects it into deep water or injects it even subsurface into uh, below sediments or rock, or for example, putting crop waste, which has sequestered carbon or wood chips and dumping that down onto the deep sea. And it's important to say the reason people want to put it in the deep ocean is that it keeps it out of the atmosphere. And depending on where in the deep ocean and how deep you go, it might stay out of the atmosphere for a hundred years or even a thousand years. So, and that's because the deep sea waters are very isolated from the air. And uh, you know, there's this giant conveyor belt that moves water around the ocean. And we only have one ocean on this earth. It's all interconnected. Um, but that conveyor belt acts over a thousand years or more. So it's a slow process. Could you explain that a little bit further? Um, so, you know, when I think of the deep sea, I, and thanks, thanks in large part to uh, you and your colleagues' research and uh, discovery of the, of the space, I'm, I'm always amazed how much is going on in the deep sea. 
And okay, so we can take carbon from up here where we are and in some form, be it sinking seaweed or sinking wood or something of that nature, we can deposit it into the deep sea where it will stay for some period of time. Do you, is there any sort of natural example of that occurring? Does that occur naturally? Sure. I mean, it, it occurs, well, the car, it's called the carbon cycle and um, it involves carbon being fixed by phytoplankton or algae and naturally, and um, eventually sinking down into the deep ocean and creating what is the largest store of carbon on earth. There's already 44 times more carbon in the deep sea than there is in the atmosphere. And, um, wow. and, and, uh, and so the idea is to enhance that natural store. Can I ask a quick follow-up on that? So, so uh, you know, all of this carbon, which I guess you're saying is being fixed by plankton. In other words, it's being absorbed by phytoplankton is what I, I imagine mostly. And then these carbon-based uh, life forms sink at some point in their life chain down into the deep sea. Is that, is that the, the gist of it? And are they on the sea floor? Are they like, are they the dirt of the, of the floor? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, basically it's called the biological pump. That's the scientific jargon for it. And um, it, the, either the phytoplankton sink and they often aggregate or they're eaten by other animals um, and those animals produce fecal pellets that sink or those other animals are eaten by other animals and those animals might swim down. We have vertically migrating animals that move carbon down. Um, in fact, they're the biggest migrations on earth, small uh, pelagic fish mesopelagic fishes and also small crustaceans. So they migrate up and down and they carry the carbon down and then they get eaten by other animals. And then the car, you know, it all makes its way down one way or another, either through the food chain or directly through the phytoplankton and algae, uh, macroalgae. We're all headed for the deep sea is what you're telling and me. It, and it gets buried down there. Yep. And you know, it accumulates on, on the seafloor. Uh, Dr. Levin, it, the organization that that uh, you are part of and, and helped co-found the Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative, could you introduce our, our listeners to the organization, its membership, and uh, its purpose, please? Sure. It, it's um, just barely 10 years old, um, and it's a, essentially a network of deep-sea scientists along with some law and policy experts and economists and a few social scientists who have an interest in the deep ocean. And its goal is to bring science to the management and policy of the deep ocean. And it turns out to be a really exciting time right now because we are in an era of ocean discovery, but we're also in an era of making policy about what we do with our deep ocean and with our high seas. So uh, the Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative, which we call DOSI, has a series of working groups. Each of them has tackled uh, a, a theme that involves human intervention in the ocean. And our, you know, our goal is to bring the best science to policymakers who 
usually don't have much scientific background, or at least not about the deep sea, and to help um, help manage the deep ocean and also maintain, help contribute to maintaining its integrity so it's around for future, those ecosystems are around for future generations. But it, it is not an advocacy group, it is basically a science network. And, and we tackle a, a lot of different themes. There's a, a working group on, on uh, marine genetic resources and one on deep sea fisheries and one on minerals mining, uh, one on climate change, uh, one on a task force on biodiversity, uh, one that's been involved in this new high seas biodiversity treaty and so, so and one on technology and so on. So lots of different themes and we try to um, help put people, put scientists in a place where they can interact with policymakers. It's such a strong, such a strong theme uh, that is clear in, in, in the paper and in, in the website. Uh, it's an essential link, uh, as you say, as we get into these management of these complex uh, natural systems that the science community is engaged with the policymakers. And uh, I want to congratulate you and all of the founders who, who made that a central part of DOCI's uh, initiative uh, is to connect the science and the policy together. Um, Dr. Levin, when you, when we're talking about the deep ocean and, and Tyler and I both have this fascination with it, we, we love watching the deep sea videos. We love watching uh, all of the extraordinary discoveries that are made, but it's more than just an extraordinary biological region, an extraordinary, uh, ecosystem. Could you help our listeners understand why it is important that the functional integrity of this region of the earth, uh, be taken into account? as we move forward with client adaptation strategies? Sure. I mean, you know, the ocean is vast and most of the ocean is deep ocean. Most of it's below 200 meters. Uh, And it is part of the earth's, well, it's essential to the sustainability of the planet. It's part of the water cycle. It's a really important part of the carbon cycle. It stores huge amounts of carbon. Some of our activities might actually release some of that carbon, you know, uh, certainly as we extract oil and gas from the deep sea, which we're doing now in large quantities, it's being released to the atmosphere. Um, but, but the biological pump that I was speaking of uh, is important in um, bringing organic matter down where it is regenerated and it's turned back into nutrients that make their way back to the surface that fuel phytoplankton, that feed zooplankton, that feed the fish that we rely on so, uh, you know, so much in the ocean as, as a source of nutrition. So it's important that way. Um, I, it's, it's worth saying that we have not explored very much of the ocean. We have mapped about 20% of the seafloor, um, but we have explored even less, a, a lo- smaller fraction of the deep sea ecosystems. And so we're still discovering new ecosystems. And I would say the majority of the species of, in the ocean, certainly of smaller organisms have yet to be discovered. Those we have found turn out in some cases to have really important properties um, and capabilities that we can use uh, for 
as uh, to develop biopharmaceuticals and medicines that we can use to develop industrial agents and that might help help us solve some problems in the future. But for the most part, I think of the deep ocean as a, a resource for future generations because so little of it has been explored and described yet. Well, this is why, uh, Lisa, I'm so stoked to be talking to you because you've actually spent quite a bit of time down in the, these spaces as a as a scientist. Uh, and I know that when you're when you're on these dives, you're like busy. <laughs> you've got a lot on your plate. But I just have to ask you what your um, the the human in you, the 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 kind of spiritual creature in you feels as someone who's been there. And of course, most of humanity will never have that opportunity that you have had. So what are you, I, I imagine you must be somewhat concerned for the space, but I mean, do you, when you're down there and you can probably imagine like a big heaping pile of, you know, sunk kelp mm-hmm. out there, um, how does that what in how do you how do you confront that uh is it emotional is it do you, are you do you keep it kind of vulcan and logical and like you know you're a scientist you're good at that how do you how do you how do you process that yeah i don't think i have much vulcan in me honestly um i love the ocean i think many people do i i feel a natural affinity for it and i feel true awe whenever i see something new down there and I feel more or less horror when I encounter, you know, human destruction down there, which I have. I mean, there is a lot of trash in the ocean. I've been at 3,000 meters and come across giant pile of plastic trash bags, you know. And wow. it, it's, it, it's definitely um, – makes me not proud of, of being part of the human race. But I, most of the ocean, you know, the deep ocean is, is relatively undisturbed at this point. So I, I feel, uh, what can I say? I, I, I guess I feel that those ecosystems have a right to exist independent of us and our needs uh, and, you know, human needs and human uses of them. That's, my personal feeling. I know that there's a lot of indigenous peoples in this world that feel um, they are custodians of the ocean. They have their ancestors down there, or they feel their people originated from the ocean. And, you know, that is not my culture, but I totally respect that as well. You know, I don't, I, I personally do not want to see the human race destroy the ocean. Well, it would certainly mean our own destruction i have to imagine i mean as as creatures from this planet which is fundamentally described by our ocean uh and our water to to destroy it would be to destroy the planet which would be to destroy ourselves i is my is my sense um and i I know peter and i share that sentiment with you but i just find your perspective to be so valuable uh having spent time there you know and uh i i only know this space in theory um i only can imagine and uh it's it's just wonderful to hear your account of 
the die, you know, being, being, being present in that space. And, you know, let, let me ask you a follow-up if I may. Um, and this is just, again, I'm going to throw another kind of big picture, deep sea question for you. But when you think, when I think of like the deep sea, I typically like start on the bottom. <laughs> I like, okay, so we're going to the bottom and it's deep. Is that the way you, uh, conceptualize it as well? Or do you start at like, you mentioned, I believe you said, uh, 600 meters or something, but do you start at a certain depth and then go down to the bottom? How do you, how do you approach that? Like, what is the deep sea to you? Well, all right. We, we've had a lot of conversations about this because of the different organizations I'm involved in. Everybody has their own definition, but the, for the most part, if you're a biologist, the deep sea starts at 200 meters or 600 feet, roughly. Um, and, and that's a, it's not a random, you know, selection of depth. It's a place where the water becomes dark. And so there's very little natural light. So um, not much photosynthesis happens. Um, and then as a result, the life forms change and, and animal strategies and behaviors change and animals begin to make their own light. You know, there's a lot of bioluminescence down there. Um, you know, if you're working with a submersible or ROV, you start at the surface. You don't start at the bottom, right? You you launch from a ship and you go down through the water column. So I am a benthic biologist. I tend to focus on the bottom and the seafloor, but you cannot help but notice the magnificent creatures in the water column. And some of them are small, but some of them are actually really large. Some of them are jelly-like, you know, jellyfish or siphonophores, big, long, stringy things. Um, many of them bioluminesce. It's the least explored part of the deep sea, the water column. You know, there are so many undescribed species there, and we're still discovering what it is they do and how, what role they play in these important nutrient and carbon cycles that I've been talking about. So, but then, you know, I, I am usually studying the bottom when I, di when I dive. So I make my way to the bottom and, and do most, spend most of my time there. Does it stop? Where does it? Okay. So like you reach the, the tippy top of the bottom, like the very top layer of benthic material, how far deep into that material, in other words, like the deep sea soil, how far deep are you interested in? Well, I, I study modern living fauna. And that means we really, by the time we're 10, 20, maybe 50 centimeters down into the sediment, we're, we've run out of animals and what's left is microbes. Now, not to say they're not important because they are very important. Um, if you go down into the sediments, several meters, you're, you will find microbes. And if you are happen to be a paleobiologist or paleontologist, you might want to core quite a few meters down into the sediment and get a record of the Earth's history out of there. And, you know, the animals that fall down, the tiny um, foraminifera and things like that leave, uh, leave their mark. They leave their skeleton, what's called a test, and people can study what was happening, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago by studying sediment cores. But I tend to look at the top 10, 10 to 20 centimeters of sediment. 
Dr. Levin, uh, you mentioned in 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 the paper um, and in your public comments about about this rapidly emerging arena uh, of uh, folks who are interested in uh, ocean-based climate intervention, to use the term. Um, it sounds like uh, the human community and many uh, entrepreneurial folks are looking at the deep ocean for climate change salvation. And uh, there's reason to be concerned, um, as you've laid out in the paper and as your colleagues at uh, Dozy have also expounded upon. Um, given the tension uh, that we face in this problem, uh, is there an appropriate use or a reasonable use of the deep ocean as a part of climate change response? You know, I, I the real answer is I don't know. Um, I, I didn't get a chance to talk about what the effects of all this, you know, dumping carbon into the ocean, dumping CO2 into the ocean is, but let's, let's do that before we, yeah, that's, that's really important. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about what the implications are of, of this kind of, uh, intervention practices. Sure. Um, well, what can happen if you stimulate excess phytoplankton growth or grow giant amounts of macroalgae? And the scale will have to be huge for it to have any effect on CO2 in the atmosphere and climate. If you do that, you begin to, and, and this begins to sink through the water, it begins to decay. It can use up oxygen um, and release carbon dioxide. That means the midwaters can be subject to what we call deoxygenation and uh, ocean acidification. So there can be geochemical changes in the water. It can release organic matter and dissolved organic matter and change microbial communities in the water column. Um, and then when it reaches the bottom, it can effectively smother the bottom you know, so adding this extra organic matter can create what we call anoxia, the lack of oxygen that can kill off a lot of animals. Um, you know, initially some of it might attract animals and be excess food, which could be okay, but it would definitely change the ecosystems that are down there. But when you put out the massive amounts that are going to be required, it will probably lead beneath the, the intervention. It will lead to basically um, annihilating whatever's living on the seafloor. Um, is that like on in that particular site where? Exactly. Where it, okay. Uh, and then, you know, if I, have have you been involved with or have, you know, have in your, you mentioned placing something down there and then seven years, <laughs> going back seven years later and observing it. Have you done that with like, say a big, maybe not a big one, but like a, you take some kelp down deep and just observe what happens. Have you, has, have somebody, has somebody tried that? Yep. <laughs> Craig Smith did that for his PhD thesis. Um, and, and I think um, there's natural kelp falls that we come across and, but it's on very small scales. And when I put things on the bottom, I've put wood on the bottom, but they're, they're tiny wood blocks, you know, less than a foot long, um, you know, four by fours. So they're really small. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen, you know, the biggest organic matter fall that anybody sees is a whale. You know, when a whale sinks to the seafloor, it, um, it's, the flesh is eaten by some opportunistic 
you know, sharks and fishes and amphipods, and then the bones begin to decay and there's huge bacterial mats that form around it and the sediments become very sulfitic. And there are animals um, that can live there. But again, a, a whale is really small scale compared to the kinds of interventions that we're talking about. Um, the one place that, you know, people are looking at depositing some of this organic matter, algae and wood and so on, uh, that might be okay are the anoxic basins uh, or anoxic seas like the Black Sea. And in, in waters where there's already no oxygen, there's not much animal life and there's definitely microbes, uh, but but the whatever gets deposited in the way of organic matter might stay there a long time. And so it might not be as much of a disruption, but again, people are talking about many, many tens of kilometers, covering tens of kilometers of seafloor. And, um, you know, there just aren't that many anoxic places, naturally anoxic places in the ocean to do this work. Um, but, you know, you, you, you had asked me whether I thought, you know, there was a way to do this, whether any of it could be okay. And I would just have to say we, in our paper, we call for research to better understand the effectiveness of these techniques, um, to verify that they actually are removing carbon and not releasing more than they remove, um, and to understand what the environmental and ecosystem impacts are so that we can evaluate trade-offs. Everybody knows that to tackle climate change, we're going to have to make some sacrifices and we're going to have to give up something. And the question is, what is it we're going to give up? And is it going to be, you know, the deep ocean <laughs> or is it going to be something else? No pennies from heaven, right, Peter? No pennies from heaven, Tyler. And I, th I think that the call in the paper, Dr. Levin, is, is incredibly sound. There is almost no example of, of the human community made, making major steps forward in technology or industrial activity where we have fully understood the consequences uh, of the actions that we are taking. Uh, we tend to find that out many, many years later, and climate change is a perfect example of that, uh, fossil fuel emissions. Uh, although there were a few folks who, who foresaw the potential problems, uh, the world plowed ahead. And I think uh, in the paper, the call for a robust and transparent scientific effort to understand uh, and research and, uh, and, to, and to really dig into the consequences of these initiatives is, is really prudent. Uh, can you speak about the necessity of that or or inform the readers a little bit more about why that is so essential in understanding the trade-offs that could, could occur. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the reason we wrote this paper is that nobody had been talking about it any detail, at least about the impact potential impacts on the deep ocean. There have been many reports, National Academies reports and others that have looked at all these technologies and talked, you know, even about verification, the need for verification. But the environmental impacts seem to get swept under the rug. It just, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be a, a major concern. So we've been trying to draw 
awareness, you know, raise awareness about this and draw attention to the problem in hopes that all of the um, industries that are starting up will develop programs to better understand what the consequences are of each of these technologies. And we also point out that some of the technologies have very similar consequences. And so we are hoping that rather than you know, a siloed effort where each of the six or eight different technologies study, you know, it has um, research programs that are independent. We actually think that there should be a, a more holistic, integrated uh, research effort to better understand how and compare how each of these uh, climate intervention approaches uh, affect ocean biogeochemistry, ocean ecosystems, the behaviors of the animals in the ocean, and so on, from from whales, you know, on down to microbes. Dr. Levin, how would you how would you assess or rate the current status of this uh, international scientific effort in this arena? Are there institutional structures that can take on? Uh, this kind of integrated research, multidisciplinary research, uh, is there a need for new institutions, new funding? Can you speak about where are we on the path of, of really doing a great job on, on the scientific understanding we have to get to? Well, all, all of this is very nascent. You know, I know that the U.S. government has gotten interested in the problem and that NOAA put out a call for science proposals. So at some level, I think, um, at least in the U.S., there's there's an effort to bring the academic research together with industry. I know that both uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution have been teaming up to uh, look a little bit at um, iron fertilization and have put out also a call for code of conduct for research. So that that's a really important step. Uh, there are some centers uh, uh, like um, this, I forget if it's called the Center for Ocean Solutions. I, I've forgotten the name of the center in the decade for ocean research, um, which is a 10 year program to um, basically address sustainable development goals. And this is one thing I should mention is, you know, that some of these intervention methods have uh, the ability to counter some of the um, SDG 14, the ocean sustainable development goal and some of the targets there. So we have to be really careful that we follow this mantra of do no harm you know, that started with the Hippocratic Oath, but it's it's been taken up by the EU and by a whole lot of other uh, organizations in trying to um, tackle the environmental challenges. So, um, you know, I haven't seen um, an international effort yet that's really focused on um climate interventions and the research needed to to uh, better understand how to how to do it properly if or if to do it at all in the ocean. Um, but I think that's it's it's coming because almost every science conference that I see happening um, this summer or this year ha- you know many of the oceanographic conferences have a session 
on climate interventions. And so the scientists are starting to talk about it. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that because uh, one of the things that I think uh, the ocean and coastal community uh, is kind of leading the way with, I would say, uh, with, with human society broadly, is in using science to drive our understanding of the, of the natural space. You know, Peter, back when we used to do beach plans, and uh, we would get, you know, we'd get that member of the public who said, you know, I know exactly what this beach is doing. I've watched it for 20 years. And it'd be like, well, you know, yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, we got to, we can look at, at <laughs> yeah. we, we have a scientific record of how this coastline is changing over a much longer period of time. And uh, I think that just the reality, I'm going to use another Peter Ravella-ism, uh, reality is a persistent teacher. And all of these yeah. uh, climate mitigation strategies that are being discussed really do, many of them do, have impacts on the deep sea. So it only makes sense that we would pursue a scientific inquiry as to what those impacts are. And I'm very curious, Dr. Levin, after publishing this paper, uh, how has, have you been approached by uh, companies or individuals who are pursuing uh, ocean-based climate uh, mitigation methods and are they and how have they received your your call to uh, study the impacts um I have not been approached since publishing the paper but I was approached before publishing the paper by several um, at seeking advice you know I think everybody has their heart in the right place and, and good intentions. And so I, you know, um, I haven't had any negative feedback about the paper from any uh, industry or, or businesses, at least yet. <laughs> Maybe that will happen. I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure they all agree that we need the science to be done alongside the economic development and the technology development. Without a doubt. If, if we want it to work, if we want to be effective uh, as a, as a, as in the human community responding to the challenge of climate change, uh, it's imperative that we understand uh, the actions we are planning to take. And, and I think, as you say, this is, this is very early in our responses uh, to this problem, and there's a lot to learn. It's most certainly the case that we do not fully understand the problem, nor do we fully understand the consequences of the uh, and the advantages and the disadvantages of the particular approaches that may emerge in this, what I would call the first inning of the game. Um, we have a long way to go, I think, Dr. Levin. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I hope that long road ahead includes looking at the deep ocean. I agree. And I want to throw in the last sticky wicket uh, that's in the paper uh, is one of the most challenging uh, topics that comes uh, in climate change uh, responses generally, uh, you know, how to set standards, how to uh, hold, uh, hold, hold countries or communities or people accountable for certain decisions or commitments. Uh, but when we get into the uh, the consequences for the deep ocean governance of this space is notoriously difficult. Uh, the paper discusses it quite clearly. Um, it's a challenge. Uh, 
how can, assume, let's assume that we can understand scientifically what is the best practice. Uh, we've sort of weighed the consequences. We know uh, that certain techniques at scale are more helpful than harmful. Um, how do we institutionally manage uh, this thing in the what is generally considered the ungovernable space on the planet, the high seas? Well, um, you know, maybe you and, and the listeners are familiar with the fact that there is a new treaty that was just agreed upon of, um, probably a month ago now. Um, called, yes. Sometimes we call it biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, and sometimes it's called the High Seas Treaty, but its goal is to govern, govern um, biodiversity and sustainable use beyond national jurisdiction. So if these uh, uh, different interventions will take place outside of exclusive economic zones, then this treaty should kick in. Um, and that treaty requires environmental impact assessment for human various human activities. So that's one way it, that uh, there could be some governance. But you know, if the different techniques that involve dumping things into the ocean, and I haven't really talked about all these methodologies, some involve dumping um, olivine or, or carbonates to make the water more alkaline, some involve just injecting liquid CO2 down into the deep sea, you know, um, but dumping iron in, um, they these would be or dumping a crop waste or wood chips or whatever, these could be governed by the London Protocol, right? Which is an international uh, and the London Convention, and they control dumping off ships into the ocean. So in international waters and, and actually in all waters, I think. You know, so there's, and, and there is already um, an amendment about iron fertilization. It's banned except for research, I think. But that amendment hasn't gone into force yet. I think it hasn't been ratified by enough countries or whatever. So um, international law and policy is a really slow process. The, the High Seas Treaty that was just agreed on won't go into force until enough countries ratify it. Uh, I forget how many that is, but it's probably going to take on the order of five years or more. So, and in the, in the next five years, I wouldn't be surprised if we've begun to ramp up some of these, um, you know, climate intervention technologies. Yeah, it, it is definitely a challenge looking ahead. Um, in your 40 years as a, as a researcher uh, and as an experienced oceanographer, a person who's, who's worked with it, an incredibly distinguished group of, of uh, people in, in the organization. Um, are you an optimist, Dr. Levin, about our capacity to effectively respond to climate change? I want to be. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I am because I know that humans are ingenious and that we can solve any problem we put our minds to. It's just having the will to do it. And, you know, that is where I worry a little bit because I don't think we have enough will yet. I don't think people understand how serious a problem this is yet, you know, and most people don't think about it much until it, until they experience a flood or a wildfire, or, you know, a, a, a massive storm or whatever it is. Um, I do think 
that we can solve the problem. And I also, but I also think, and you know, there was a, a very nice uh, opinion piece by David Ho and Nature, you know, pointing out that to solve this problem, we're going to have to reduce our emissions and we can't solve the problem by remove, simply removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, actively removing it. I could not agree more. It is about our willpower. This is about the era. I, I really think that this is the defining thing of our era, really. You know, this, th how to live uh, a more in a more sustainable way as, as a human species on the planet is, is the moment that we're in. And I've said it before on the show, Peter, and uh, we're encountering the same thing again. It's, it's really, it impacts every aspect of our life uh, because all of these systems on, on the planet are interconnected. The deep sea is connected with the upper atmosphere, and it, which is amazing and beautiful. And what's also amazing is that's not just like H2O molecules, you know, it's the life. The life is what like is pumping it around along with the planetary forces. But I mean, it's just, it's very cool. And, uh, I have to say, Dr. Levin, first of all, thank you for your your career and your work and your uh, you and your team putting this paper together and the work that you're doing to raise awareness of the deep sea. I think that, uh, Peter, it's, it's up to you and I and, and the rest of the coastal and ocean community to hold uh, the health of the deep sea ecosystem and the ocean ecosystem and, and, and broadly understanding its interconnectedness to all of us um, in very, in, in, in the highest regard when we're thinking about solutions. You know, that's really the, the pivot that we need to take. So for our audience out there, you know, I, we're, we're probably a bunch of ocean lovers. It's, it's like fairly accessible. So we can all learn more about the deep sea and continue to follow along uh, as researchers uh, be it, be it Dr. Levin or her colleagues, go about the business of uh, discovering how these ecosystems work, and always asking the question: Well, what are the impacts to the deep sea ecosystems when we're talking about climate change mitigation techniques? Dr. Levin, uh, final words for our listeners out there, and please, if you could, let them know how they can follow along with your work and your colleagues at the Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative. Um, sure. Well. Anybody's welcome to sign up for our uh, weekly newsletter. If you are interested in the deep ocean, you can just go ahead and Google Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative and and uh, sort of the bottom of the homepage, there is a place to sign on up and, and uh, learn about what's happening in the deep sea. And if you're really interested in this problem of climate change, you can sign up for the Climate Working Group or... Um, or any of the other working groups. We welcome all different types of interest and expertise on this. Um, you know, and, and gee, final words. I just really want to thank you both for taking the time to feature this issue and to um, bring the attention, to bring the deep ocean to the attention of your audience. I think, you know, it doesn't get talked about all that often on the media. So uh, I'm really happy to have had that opportunity today. 
Well, it's absolutely our pleasure and privilege to have you on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Lisa Levin. She is an oceanographer at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She's a co-founder of the Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative, and she is the co-lead of the Climate Working Group within the initiative and one of the many people working incredibly hard to face down one of the greatest challenges in, in our era, as Tyler says, climate change. So, Dr. Levin... Thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights with our listeners. Thank you.